0: Good morning, welcome again, glad to be back with you all, we missed you all while we were gone the last couple weeks. Uh, we're in Matthew chapter 2 this morning, um, we're actually cheating a little bit because um, last week Matthew 1 gets you ready for Jesus to be born, and then Matthew kind of just skips over him actually being born, and then he spends a lot of time talking about things that happen after he was born. So um, if you're a hardcore Christmas Advent person, sorry to offend you, Um Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Um, there's a We're at this scene that's really famous of the three uh, magi. Well, really, we don't even know how many there were. There's three gifts. There's just these magi, uh, these wise men who come to visit Jesus uh, right after he's been born. Uh, as I was studying for this sermon this week, I came across a, a painting by Leonardo da Vinci of this scene where... Um, He didn't actually finish the painting. Uh, He ran off to find a better job uh, towards the end of painting it. But what he did finish, you have in the foreground of the painting, you have the the three wise men there um, bowing down, worshiping baby Jesus uh, in Mary's lap. Uh, But in the background of the painting, uh, he painted this hectic mishmash of chaos. Uh, You have soldiers killing each other. You have a building crumbling and falling apart. You have a bunch of people dying. Uh, And part of the point, it seems, is that he's emphasizing that Jesus came into a world of disorder and decay and death. Uh, And yet, amazingly, there in the foreground, you have these three important wise men all totally focused on Jesus. Uh, If you look at the painting, I spent a long time looking at it this week, uh, a part of you almost wants to scream at these guys and say, Don't you see? What's going on behind you? Don't you see what's going on in the world? Uh, Why are you so fixated on a baby? Uh, Isn't this wasteful to spend these costly treasures? Uh, You could be using them to solve all those problems going on right behind you. Uh, I think it's an interesting way to show us the incredible shock and contrast of the world that Jesus entered into and how focused these guys were on him. Um, Just before we read the passage, um, I wonder if you were going to paint that picture, what you would have painted into the background. Um, Maybe uh, you would paint uh, a married couple sleeping in separate rooms after having yet another fight. Maybe you would paint a father looking at pornography while his wife's putting the kids down to bed. Maybe you would have painted a teenager cutting her arms with a razor blade. Maybe you would have painted somebody glued to the news, totally isolated, fearful of getting sick and dying. Maybe you would have painted somebody alone in a hospital bed, eking out their last days with no family around. That's the world that Jesus came into. This is the world that Jesus has come to save. Let's read the passage thinking about what these wise men are doing and how we might become more like them. Matthew chapter 2, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask God for help. Father, open your word to us, make it clear so that we can understand what it says, uh, so that we might see again uh, what a beautiful and wonderful and powerful name Jesus has. You save, Lord, and you save us in him. Help us to see that. We pray in his name. Amen. Uh, We saw last week in Matthew chapter 1 when you uh, had Joshua Coleman here with you uh, that Jesus' name, which is actually really Joshua, that's really just his name, um, his name Joshua or Jesus means the Lord saves. Uh, but that Jesus was also to be given another name, in a way. Another name, Emmanuel. That name means God with us. God is with us. Um, now, as Joshua Coleman, not Joshua Christ, pointed out to you last week, uh, the Messiah, that God's king, can only be called God saves because he's also called... No, I'm saying this backwards. He can only be called God is with us because he's also named God saves. Uh, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Our sins have separated us from God. Our greatest problem is our sins. They are upstream from all the chaos that Leonardo da Vinci or you paint in the background of this scene. Jesus saves us from our sins, and because he saves us from our sins, God really can be among us. That's one of the great questions, one of the great tensions of the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, which Matthew quotes over and over and over again. How can a holy God dwell among a sinful people? By the end of Isaiah, the answer is that God is going to finally deal with our sins. He's going to finally make a way for us to be forgiven so that we can be with him and he can be with us. This is why the wise men are so joyfully focused on this little baby, even in the midst of a sad and chaotic world. Um, if you're like me, you know that it's very easy to become pretty bored and complacent with Jesus and with what God is doing through him. Um, maybe some of us this morning are kind of resentful toward God. Uh, maybe we're just jaded when we hear about these things, when we think about these things. And so as we come to what for many of us is a very familiar story, the question is whether or not we're going to join the Magi in this joyful and focused worship of Jesus, in spite of all the temptations to focus on everything going on in the background, uh, in spite of the temptations to be bored or jaded about it all. And so to help us move toward this focused and joyful worship of Jesus, the first thing I want to show you in this story is the surprise of it all. The surprise of it all. First, you have Jesus' Emmanuel's surprising servants, You have surprising servants here. Uh, Look at verses 1 and 2 again. You have some wise men from the distant east showing up in Jerusalem looking for Jesus. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and we've come to worship him. Uh, Many of us are used to seeing three placid, calm, wise men in our nice little nativity scenes. And so we've lost the shock of this whole sentence. Maybe we've never even realized that this is actually a really shocking thing for Matthew to say. Because these are not the kind of people that you would expect to come looking to worship Israel's Messiah. The word that gets translated in my Bible as wise men uh, is a Greek word that means something like magician, or wizard, or sorcerer, or astrologer. Every other time this word gets used in the New Testament, it is obviously very negative. These are bad people. You don't want to be like these people. They are pagans whose lives revolved around worshiping the stars and the planets. Uh, Their lives were all about understanding the motions of the heavenly bodies in order to explain and control life in this world. Uh, One of the great things, even in the Old Testament, that the Jewish people rejoiced in is that God had rescued them from that kind of idolatrous devotion to God's creation. Uh, These magi, these magicians, would have been something like, sort of like the expert scientists of their own day. Uh, And you can see from the kinds of gifts they bring to Jesus that they were actually quite wealthy. And so these are elites. They are elite magicians, elite scientists, so to speak, coming from the East, Uh, probably the land of Persia, which if we've been paying attention in the Bible, we know is the very place where Israel, Israel was exiled. This is a very bad place to go. It was a, bad, a place that they were very glad to leave. And so here we have these three, uh, not three, sorry. We all think there's three. We have these elite magicians coming there from the land of exile. And yet it's these pagan wizards who show up looking for the Messiah. Uh, And shockingly, the way that they've figured out sort of where to find him is through their idols, through the stars. I spent a long time this week trying to think of what would be a comparable uh, kind of group of people today uh, to understand how weird this is that they're doing this. And here's the best thing I came up with, trying to think of elite uh, people into alternative spirituality that you wouldn't associate with uh, traditional religion. Uh, Imagine if Gwyneth Paltrow and Deepak Chopra, he's kind of a self-help, new-agey guy, if you don't know who that is. Uh, and Oprah Winfrey uh, showed up one day, one Sunday morning, at First Fundamentalist Church. Uh, and they said, hey, uh, Fundamentalist pastor, uh, you know, this morning we got up really early and we were rubbing crystals and we were doing mushrooms and we were becoming one with the universe. And, you know, we just got this really strange sense that we should find out more about who Jesus is. Can you tell us more about him? We don't know very much. I think that's something like what's going on here. It's pretty shocking. And it's kind of the point. It's almost, I think, kind of comical. But it's part of Matthew's larger point that Jesus has not just come for the Jewish people, but for all peoples. Uh, Even the kind of people that you might not expect to show up, maybe the kind of people that you don't even want to show up. We saw all through uh, Jesus' genealogy there in Matthew 1, Uh, four different Gentile women that Matthew makes sure we understand were part of the lineage of the Messiah. Uh, You see this all through the Gospel of Matthew as Jesus is interested in and helping uh, outsiders, people from outside ethnic Israel. And then you see it at the very end of Matthew as Jesus sends out his followers to make disciples of all nations. And so the Magi, bringing their gifts to the child Jesus, is fulfilling a whole bunch of Old Testament prophecies about how one day the pagan nations would stream to God's temple to offer their best gifts to Him in devotion and worship. Our world, of course, our country, of course, continues to wrestle with all kinds of painful issues around racial and ethnic reconciliation, racial and ethnic sins of the past and the present. And so one thing that we need to see today is that Jesus is our world's only true hope for peace and healing among ethnic groups of people. Like the Tower of Babel, the world's methods of uniting us, the world's methods of resolving conflict, will in the end only divide us further. And so in these surprising servants, the wizards that come to worship Jesus, uh, let's remember, again, let's remember that God is deeply concerned for bringing outsiders in. All of us were at one time just as far outside of God's family as these pagan wizards were. And so let's pray and work in so far as we can to make our church a community that better reflects God's desire to reconcile the nations in the worship of Jesus. So you have some surprising friends, some surprising servants, but you also have some surprising enemies. Look at verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Uh, we're going to learn a lot more about Herod over the next couple of weeks, but you can see here that he is not very happy to hear from these magicians about somebody else claiming to be the king of the Jews. Herod uh, was a, actually a puppet of the Roman Empire, Uh, He was only half-Jewish, and he was widely hated by the Jewish people. But in one sense, he really was the king of the Jews. The Roman Emperor Augustus had personally made him so because he was loyal to him, because he had helped him out quite a bit during the Roman civil wars. Herod feels threatened. Herod feels quite suspicious when he hears these foreign elites right there in his own throne room saying, Hey, where's the king? He's saying, What do you mean, where's the king? You're in a throne room. I'm the king. Herod is the ultimate insider in Israel. And yet he's immediately hostile toward God's Messiah. And so he's the first surprising enemy. But he's not the only one. You hear there also that all Jerusalem was troubled with Herod. It's a way, I think, of referring, as it often is in the Gospels, it's a way of referring to the local political and religious leadership because Jerusalem is the center of Israel's social and economic life. It's kind of like what we mean today uh, when we would say, Joe Biden and Washington, D.C. were troubled. We don't mean like, oh, the grocery store workers at the store were kind of troubled. We mean all the important people were troubled. That's what's going on here. Israel, its own elites there in Jerusalem... Uh, sitting on top of everybody else, they also are threatened to hear about the coming of the Messiah. And we don't know exactly why. Maybe it's because they also uh, are indifferent toward Jesus. Uh, Or maybe it's because they're afraid of what the famously psychotic Herod will do to them if they actually go and worship him. But in any case, they refuse to go with the Magi to worship God's king. All of the insiders so far in this story, all the insiders shrug or turn against Jesus even as a baby, while the pagan outsiders are diligently seeking him out. So we have surprising servants, we have surprising enemies, but now, of course, we have Jesus' surprising circumstances. Uh, first thing about his circumstances that I think should surprise us is that we have a lowly word, a lowly message The Magi's study of the natural world, they remember they're kind of like scientists back in their day, they study the sky, they know it really well. Their study of the natural world gets them to the general vicinity of Jesus' birthplace. They're about five miles away. But finally, and ultimately, they depend on the clear word of Scripture. All their expertise cannot get them to Jesus. They and we need God's word through Israel as strange and as particular and as offensive as it was back then and as it is today. Uh, Teresa read for us from the prophet Micah, which Herod's going to get a little quote from Micah about where Jesus was going to be born. And you've heard all those strange images. What does it mean about having an iron horn and threshing and all these things? Um, I mean, this this is how... The Magi find out where to find God's king. Listen to the very first verse of the prophet Micah. This is one of these little tiny books in the Old Testament. Uh, Here's the first verse of that book. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Uh, Probably a good amount of us know sort of where Jerusalem is. Um, Maybe some of us know where Samaria is. Where's Moresheth? I don't know. You know, no one's going to Morsheth for vacation this Christmas. Who's Jotham? Who's Ahaz? Who's Hezekiah? I don't know. The Bible says a little bit about them. Not very much. It's all very strange, isn't it? If you want to find God's king, you want to find the way that God is going to transform the whole entire universe, you want to be on the right side of that, what do you have to do? You have to listen to these old, dusty, strange books from this little, tiny, insignificant group of people. God revealing himself to them through these weird prophets who say lots of strange things and do lots of strange things. Those magi depended on it. We depend on it too. It's a strange, lowly word. You hear in verse 4 that Herod gets all the leaders together to ask where the Messiah was going to be born. And they quote for him from Micah. They say God's anointed king is going to come from the puny little village of Bethlehem. Which, of course, uh, we know from studying 1 Samuel recently, that's where David came from. Uh, We hear, from you, Bethlehem, shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel, like David God's final king will be a shepherd. He'll uh, not literally shepherd sheep like David did, but he's going to shepherd God's harassed and helpless people in the midst of this world of death. So you have this lowly word, Israel's strange ancient scriptures. You have a lowly place, pathetic little Bethlehem, too insignificant to count among all the towns and cities. And now, of course, another element of his surprising circumstances. He's just a lowly child. He's just a lowly child. Look at verse 11. The Magi get to the home of this poor family. And there in the home is a teenage mother who's under this cloud of suspicion about how she got pregnant. She's bearing enormous social stigma. And she's holding this little boy. And here, the Magi realize, here's God's king. Here's God's king sitting in the lap of the teen mom, the son of David, Emmanuel, God with us. He's come in weakness and humility for the great mission of saving us from our sins. Having just left the splendor of Herod's palace, these great elite wealthy magi don't scoff at the poverty of it all. They see with the eyes of faith that this baby is God's mighty king. And so they fall down in worship. That's the surprise of Jesus. Not the servants you'd expect, not the enemies you'd expect, not the circumstances you'd expect. But now against the backdrop of the surprise, uh, let's turn now to consider their worship. Uh, I think the key to really worshiping Jesus like the way they do here is in large part understanding the surprise of it all. Embracing uh, that it is what you wouldn't expect. That's why it's such a joyful thing. So a thing that you're willing to give to. First, you can see in Herod that this worship can be fake. The worship can be fake. Herod, uh, we'll learn a little more next week and the week after, Herod was quite infamous for his paranoia. And you can see that here. After learning that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem, in verse seven, he secretly calls back in these magicians and he says, hey, uh, when did you first notice this thing happening in the sky that told you this was going on? Oh, oh, really? Okay, hmm. And he says, okay, now I want you to go to Bethlehem and uh, I want you to find out exactly where he is and then tell me, come back, make sure you come back and tell me where he is so that I can come worship him too. And so you see he's saying it's all about worship. And next week, we don't know exactly yet what's going on, but next week we'll see that he has a very twisted plot in mind. But here he's pretending it's about worship. He says, oh, I can't come now. I've got a lot of things to do, but I'll come later. Just come back and tell me where he is. I want to worship him too. Uh, He's troubled by this news of a new king coming into Israel, and yet he's faking this admiration for Jesus. All through the gospel stories, you see people who really do, unlike Herod, they really do admire Jesus at some level, but when he really lays out what it's going to cost them to follow him, they say, never mind. I'm not willing to give that up to follow you. But you also see people like Herod, who are cynically faking it, uh, who are pretending to admire him, pretending to worship him, trying to trap him somehow. But in both cases, whether um, they sort of admire him, but at the end of the day, they're like, ah, never mind, it's too much. Or they're just, you know, actually malicious against him. In both cases, Jesus is just too much of a threat to them. Jesus is too much of a threat to their own, to our own fantasy of being in control of our own lives, being in control of our own little kingdoms. And so one of the questions for us this morning to ask yourself is this. Is there any corner in my heart? Is there any place in my life where I'm kind of playing Herod? Where maybe I pretend like Jesus is in control. Maybe I profess some kind of admiration. I say, oh, yes, of course. I'll do whatever Jesus wants in this area. But actually, uh, maybe a part of our lives where we're refusing to bow down to Jesus. Where we're saying, no, I'm still the king. I'm still the queen. Worshipping Jesus can be fake. But you see there in the Magi that real worship should be joyful. Uh, Presbyterians aren't exactly known for their joy. Uh, Some of that is just, you know, cultural and traditional, and that's okay. I lived in Scotland. Uh, Scottish people, you know, the way they express their joy and their interest in what's happening in church is by criticizing you afterwards. (laughs) Um, And so we're better than they are. But maybe there's a good point here for us uh, in learning to be more joyful like the Magi, especially noticing how dignified and important they are. Um, In verse 9, this supernatural star or event or whatever it is that's going on, we're not really sure, uh, somehow it kind of reappears and it guides them to the house where Jesus is located. And this makes them really, really happy. Uh, Matthew says that the Magi rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. He could have just said, they rejoiced. He could have just said, they were happy. But he piles up all these words about lots and lots of joy. They were, really, they were so joyful, they were rejoicing joyfully over and over and over again. And so it's in this joy that they fall down in deference to this lowly child in the lap of Mary. Uh, these are very important guys. They're very rich. They're very knowledgeable. They were highly respected in their own societies. But here, it's almost funny, they're giddily laying down on the floor worshiping a poor little baby. They must look pretty ridiculous. If their friends from Persia were there, they probably would have said, What are you doing? What's wrong with you? But they don't care. God does not want us to worship his son Jesus because we have to, uh, because we're used to it, because we want to make our parents happy, because we're just going through the motions. God wants our hearts, he wants our very selves. And it's in knowing that God's king has come for outsiders like the Magi, outsiders like us, it's in knowing that, um, that we find this real joy in seeing that Jesus has come not just to save us from sin in the abstract, but to save us from our sins, to be with us in the midst of a sad and deathly world and ultimately to rescue us out of it, to transform it into something joyful and happy. When we see that and when we savor that, that's what makes us joyful, even with everything going on in the background. Uh, Part of the question for us is this Do we really believe that we need to be saved? Do we really believe that we need to be radically rescued? Or do we believe that we're basically fine? That we and our wealth and our relationships can more or less get us through the troubles of life. If that's the case, then Jesus is going to be pretty boring to you. Jesus is going to be rather uninteresting to you. But if you do accept this humbling word that you do need to be radically saved, that you cannot do it on your own, that you are totally helpless, that God is not interested merely in good intentions, then with the Magi... You will worship, and you'll do it joyfully. And of course here, you not only see their worship is joyful, you also see that their worship is costly. It's costly. The magi give him gifts worthy not only of a king, but also of a god. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. We know what gold is. Both frankincense and myrrh were these valuable resins that they used for medicine, for cosmetics, for burning incense. They also used it in religious worship. Um, You offered these things commonly in the ancient world to pagan gods. And so this is an enormous statement that these pagans are making by offering these things to Jesus. But the point overall, regardless of what exactly these different gifts are, the point is that they're costly. They're valuable. It's the best they have to offer. They do not think, well, Jesus is pretty important. Uh, So let me dig around in my pockets. Let me lift up my couch cushions. Uh, Let me see if I have anything left over after I've made sure that I'm taking care of myself and my family and all the things I like to do. Uh, Let me make sure that my life and my future are definitely secure, and then I'll see what's left over, and I'll give that to Jesus. They did not think, well, we're pretty joyful, and you know, we really did come a really long way to see him, and our intentions are really good, So certainly he will understand if I hang on to my money. Certainly he will understand if I hang on to my possessions. He doesn't really need them. He is God, after all. That's not what they do. Uh, In the Bible, the Bible talks about worship in all kinds of ways. It talks about sacrifice in all kinds of ways. Um, Part of that is always about giving up whatever wealth or possessions that God's given you. Part of that uh, is about um, not only giving your time, not only giving your talents, although it is that, uh, It's also, and sometimes for some of us, this is the hardest thing to give up, it's giving up your money. Giving your money to what God is doing in the world, giving your money towards what he's doing in a way that's not only kind of an afterthought, like, well, I don't really need it anyways, but in a way that's actually costly. And for some of us, that will mean giving a lot, and for some of us, that will mean giving not a lot. These are precious items. They are joyfully brought to Jesus at great expense, at great risk to themselves. But really, as we think about worship, the real question is not whether you're going to worship. The question is what you worship. All of us worship all the time. Uh, All of us are sacrificing our time and our money and our talents and our possessions for the things that we believe are most valuable. The things that we believe will give us the greatest security. Uh, We sacrifice all kinds of things for our comfort, for our future, for our family, and so on. The Magi saw how valuable and how worthy Jesus was, as ridiculous and as wasteful as it might have seemed. We know that they really understood who he was and how important he was and how important what his work was going to be was because of how joyful they were. And so again, another question to ask ourselves, how joyful is my worship? How costly is my worship? But the most important of those two questions is the joy one. The joy is what drives the sacrifice. Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians that God loves a cheerful giver. And so the real deep question is how do you become more cheerful about who God is and what he's done? How do you become more joyful? Has Jesus become cold and boring to you? Uh, Or maybe like Herod, is Jesus a threat to you? Is Jesus a threat to your own control over the things in your life? Or instead, do you see with the Magi the incredible, even the shocking value of Jesus as God's king? The incredible work of what he's doing as Emmanuel. God come to save us. God come to be with us. God come to radically rescue us from our sins. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving up your son. Thank you that uh, we sacrifice only in response to your sacrifice. Uh, What a generous gift you've given us in him. Help us to see with the Magi uh, the glory that you are revealing in Jesus uh, in spite of how strange or ridiculous it all might seem. Help us to truly see who he is and as we see him, help us to be joyful and help us to worship you uh, with earnest Happy, sacrificing hearts, we pray in his name. Amen.